Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn-Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Is there anything new to say about Mark Twain? In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, recorded recently at the Mark Twain House in Hartford, Twain scholar and University of St. Joseph Professor Emerita Carrie Driscoll explores one of the last unexamined aspects of Mark Twain, a topic she says has not been so much overlooked as avoided. Twain was generally known for championing the underdog, but Driscoll unflinchingly reveals here, and in her book Mark Twain Among the Indians and Other Indigenous Peoples, Twain's blind spot when it came to America's first peoples. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. And Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. Hi, this is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Want to win a copy of Carrie's book, Mark Twain Among the Indians? Share Connecticut Explored's post about this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and tag us to be entered in the drawing. Offer expires July 15, 2018. We're lucky to have two great American authors, Mark Twain and Harriet Beecher Stowe, here in Connecticut, who are also next-door neighbors in Hartford and whose houses are both top historic sites. They're great places to visit with tons of great programming. The Twain House offers up frequent opportunities to hear today's American writers and humorists. On June 20, 2018, Twain scholar, Twain House board member, and recently retired professor of English, Carrie Driscoll, held her book launch at the museum. To an enthusiastic full house, Carrie explained why she decided to write this book. I think the subject chose me in a, in a really weird way. <laughs> um, it's because no one else had written about it. Indians are almost everywhere in Mark Twain's writing. It's not just something that, you know, it's kind of like a an anomaly where he wrote about it once or twice and then abandoned the subject. It's there from the very first pieces that he publishes in newspapers at like the age of 15, right up to uh, one of the very last things he wrote uh, a few months before he died is uh, was un- left unpublished, right? it's called Letters from the Earth, and, and it's got a very troubling um, section in it about, about American Indians. And so I think I was trying to just figure it out for myself, basically. Why? Because he was, you know, as his biographer said, he's the champion of the underdog, right? You know, he was always for right. And that's true in so many remarkable instances. So why the blinders about this particular group? And that was the question I tried to answer. Here we pick up her lecture from the beginning. In 1907, Thomas Edison famously quipped, The average American loves his family. If he has any love left over for some other person, he generally selects Mark Twain. The inventor's statement begs the question, Why is Twain such a beloved figure? The answer in part is, of course, because he's so funny. But more importantly, the writer's reputation as a racial progressive and socially conscious defender of the marginalized, reviled, and voiceless has made him an American icon, a kind of secular saint, if you will. Twain's first biographer, Albert Bigelow Payne, 
described him as, quote, a zealous champion of justice and liberty, unquote, declaring that he was invariably for the oppressed. He had a natural instinct for the right, but right or wrong, he was for the underdog. Twain was indeed forward-thinking in his views about many 19th-century hot-button issues. For example, he valiantly defended Chinese immigrants in California, against whom rampant prejudice existed, in his 1872 travelogue, Roughing It. They are a harmless race, quiet, peaceable, tractable, free from drunkenness, and they are as industrious as the day is long. A disorderly Chinaman is rare, and a lazy one does not exist. He is a great convenience to everybody, even the worst class of white men, for he bears most of their sins, suffering fines for their petty thefts, imprisonment for their robberies, and death for their murders. Any man can swear a Chinaman's life away in the courts, but no Chinaman can testify against a white man. Ours is the land of the free. Nobody denies that. Nobody challenges it. Maybe it is because we won't let other people testify. No California gentleman or lady ever abuses or oppresses a Chinaman under any circumstances. Only the scum of the population do it. They and their children, they and naturally and consistently, the policemen and the politicians likewise. For these are the dust-licking pimps and slaves of the scum there as well as elsewhere in America. That's some pretty righteous indignation, wouldn't you agree? No mealy-mouthed mincing of words either, branding the unenlightened retrogrades who discriminate against the Chinese as dust-licking pimps and slaves of scum. Talk about speaking the truth to power. But the absolute linchpin of Twain's iconic status as a racial progressive are his views concerning African Americans. Born into a slaveholding family in antebellum Missouri, Clemens not only transcended, but actively renounced and personally sought to atone for the oppression of blacks through numerous acts of philanthropy, underwriting the full costs, travel, tuition, and living expenses for two years of art school in Paris for Charles Ethan Porter, a self-taught African-American painter from Rockville. He also paid the tuition of one A.W. Jones, a theology student at Pennsylvania's Lincoln University, a historically black institution, as well as the room and board expenses for Warner McGuinn, the first black admitted to Yale Law School. Writing to Yale Dean Francis Wayland in December 1885, Clemens asked, do you know him? And is he worthy? I do not believe I would very cheerfully help a white student who would ask a benevolence of a stranger, but I do not feel so about the other color. We have ground the manhood out of them, and the shame is ours, not theirs, and we should pay for it. Twain's commitment to the advancement of African Americans persisted right up until his death in 1910. Here is a photo taken at New York's Carnegie Hall on January 22, 1906, at a fundraiser celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Tuskegee Institute, a school, now university, founded to educate blacks in the post-Reconstruction era. The man speaking is Booker T. Washington, the Institute's principal and author of the historic memoir, Up From Slavery. Seated immediately behind him on the stage platform is none other than Clemens himself, who not only attended the event, 
but also gave an eloquent speech in support of Washington's endeavors. But for all of his genius and generosity of spirit, Mark Twain was, after all, a human being, meaning that his tolerance, though admirably wide-ranging, necessarily had its limits. As he acknowledged in an 1899 essay called Concerning the Jews, I am quite sure that bar one, I have no race prejudices, and I think I have no color prejudices, nor caste prejudices, nor creed prejudices. Indeed, I know it. I can stand any society. All that I care to know is that a man is a human being. That is enough for me. He can't be any worse. <laughs> Although this statement is somewhat coy in Twain's refusal to identify the one racial bias he admits to harboring, over the years, numerous commentators have surmised that the allusion must be to American Indians, since his views of them were so uncharacteristically harsh. Mark Twain is among the most extensively studied of American authors. The amount of scholarship on his work rivals that done on Shakespeare. In the centuries since his death, virtually every aspect of his life and writing has been subjected to rigorous scrutiny. Examine the shelves in any academic library, or even the museum gift shop here, and you'll see titles like Mark Twain and Male Friendship, Mark Twain, Travel Books and Tourism, Mark Twain and West Point, Mark Twain and Animals, Mark Twain and Youth. I could go on and on, but I think you catch my drift. What you won't find, however, until now, ta-da! <laughs> With the publication of my book is a detailed examination of his views about Native Americans. This topic, I would argue, has not been so much overlooked as deliberately avoided because of the discomfort it elicits. If we as a nation and culture have put Twain on a pedestal, revering him as an idealized version of America's best self, his harsh and at times outright, outright racist depiction of Indians threatens that narrative by complicating the spectrum of his thinking about race. In Mark Twain, Among the Indians and Other Indigenous Peoples, I set out to trace literally every reference to Native Americans that I could find in the author's fiction, newspaper sketches, speeches, and essays over a period of close to 60 years. My intent was neither to defame nor defend Mark Twain, but to try to figure out why his attitudes were so antagonistic. What I discovered is that there was no easy answer to this question, no first-hand polarizing incident of frontier violence that would establish a basis for his enduring animus. I also sought to chart out the evolution of these attitudes to determine how and to what extent they changed over time. It's worth noting Clemens's birth and death dates here, 1835 to 1910, meaning that his life straddles the bloodiest period of native white relations in the second half of the 19th century, infamous for the Plains Indian Wars and Custer's last stand at the Little Bighorn in 1876. But he also lived two decades after the massacre at South Dakota's Wounded Knee Creek on December 29, 1890 an event that signaled the end of indigenous resistance to government control throughout the country. After 1890, Indians were utterly vanquished, colonized, and conquered, no threat to anyone, and therefore the tide of public opinion about them began to shift toward greater sympathy. Not so much Mark Twain. 
The story grew even more complicated when I globalized my focus to include the 1895-96 World Lecture Tour that took the writer to Australia, New Zealand, and other far-flung outposts of the British Empire, such as India and South Africa. On this journey, he encountered Aboriginal peoples whose fate under colonial rule, dispossession, impoverishment, and confinement on government reserves was uncannily similar to the situation of Indians in his own country. In his 1897 travelogue following the equator, he denounces British imperialism as, quote, robbery, humiliation, and slow, slow murder through poverty and the white man's whiskey, unquote. But oddly, despite the abundant parallels with Native Americans, he never explicitly connected their mistreatment with that suffered by the indigenous peoples of the Southern Hemisphere. Time and time again in researching the book, what I discovered defied my expectations. For example, during the years that the writer spent in Nevada Territory, from 1861 to 1864, where he met Indians face-to-face for the first time, he was in many ways blind, or at least callously indifferent to their plight. A rich vein of silver, called the Comstock Lode, had been discovered in Nevada just two years before his arrival, generating a massive influx of white settlers to the region, hoping to get rich quick. These miners displaced local tribes, like the Paiute and Washoe, chopping down the pinyon pines they depended upon for survival and depleting the fish and game. The natives were starving and desperate. Unable to sustain their traditional nomadic lifestyle, many took up residence on the outskirts of the mining camps, foraging for food and cast-off clothing, working as ranch hands, housekeepers, and day laborers. Their willingness to adapt to these radically changed circumstances displays admirable resilience. Groups like the extended family depicted in this photograph, taken sometime in the early 1870s in Virginia City, the town where Twain lived and worked as a reporter for the Territorial Enterprise newspaper, would have been a familiar sight to him. Though the writer's circumstances afforded him ample opportunity to observe the Great Basin tribes firsthand, he did not, or perhaps could not, see beyond their poverty, filth, and beggary. Appalled by the squalor in which the Paiute, Washoe, and Shoshone lived, he averted his eyes, deeming their condition proof of innate racial inferiority rather than the result of complex historical circumstances. In print, he repeatedly deplored their disgusting dietary habits, claiming that they ate live grasshoppers as well as the lice that infested their unwashed bodies. They were in his mind unquestionably other degraded, and dehumanized. To put these views into fuller perspective, I'd like to tell you briefly about a writer named Dan DeQuill, who worked as a reporter alongside Twain at the Territorial Enterprise. The two men were not only professional colleagues, but also roommates for about six months, since housing was at such a premium in the mining boomtown. If Clements's stance toward Western Indians was dismissive and foreclosed, DeQuill's was just the opposite. He was a fluent speaker of Paiute, a close friend of local native leaders, and a staunch ally of the people he referred to as the red proprietors of the soil, a phrase that signifies his recognition of their hereditary and spiritual title to the land. According to his obituary, in Virginia City, DeQuill was loved by everyone, 
Even the children of the hills, the Paiutes, knew him as a friend, and if they had a grievance, they came to him for advice, and he loved them as he loved everything in nature. In a book called Washoe Rambles, DeQuill presents a colorful account of an 1861 prospecting trip through western Nevada, during which he encountered large groups of Indians. The text reflects both his insatiable curiosity about Paiute language, customs, and legends, as well as an acute awareness of his outsider status as a Wamugina, or American. Many of DeQuill's sociological and linguistic observations about Nevada Indians challenge the prevailing stereotype of savagery. The children he meets, for example, are impeccably well-behaved, prompting him to note that some white children I have seen might learn a lesson of modesty from these Indian girls. They did not romp about or yell for this thing or that, pull and haul at everything within their reach, nor disobey their parents. He clearly enjoys their company and readily shares whatever provisions he has on hand in order to learn more about them. As to the Indian beggars, he says, I am almost ashamed to say it. I am afraid I am guilty of encouraging them. I rather like to have them around, to study their language and characters. One evening, he recalls, as he and his two companions prepared dinner, our Indian neighbors began to drop in. First came two old men, then three squaws with several small children. As we ate, they gathered about and watched with eager, hungry eyes, each mouthful, and with their silent longing seemed to rebuke us for having such frightfully good appetites. Their looks said plainer than words, will these selfish Ramuginas devour all? We wanted to give the whole hungry crew a square meal, but it was impossible. We could only give each a small taste of bread. DeQuill regards the Indians not as trespassers, but neighbors. Realizing their desperate hunger, his impulse is to feed them all, although the miners' limited food supply permits only a bit of bread. Citing Jesus' dictum, it is more blessed to give than to receive, he distributes food freely throughout his journey without anger or resentment. DeQuill also admires the Indians' communal ethos, noting that when he offers a child some supper, instead of sitting down and devouring it all himself, he divided it with his friends giving all hands, young and old, a taste, reserving but a few mouthfuls for himself. It was in vain that we gave him a fresh supply, telling him to eat it himself. As soon as he received it, it was distributed among the crowd. DeQuill's interest, open-mindedness, and goodwill are a far cry from the negativism of Twain's descriptions. One final word about DeQuill, whose 1876 history of the Comstock Lode, The Big Bonanza, was printed at Mark Twain's behest here in Hartford by Elisha Bliss's American Publishing Company. Clemens even invited DeQuill to Hartford in the spring of 1875 to work on the book in the carriage house just across the way from where we're sitting. This is a quote from a letter that he wrote to DeQuill. To write a book felicitously, a man needs to be delightfully circumstanced and entirely free from cares, interruptions, and annoyances. Here you shall stop at the best hotel, and every morning I will walk down, meet you halfway, bring you to my house, and we will grind literature all day long in the same room. In one of the more bizarre symmetries I uncovered in the process of researching this book, while DeQuill worked on The Big Bonanza, Twain was finishing up The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. 
the novel that contains his most infamous native character, that murderin half-breed, Injun Joe. This illustration from DeQuill's text, in some respects, says it all, affirming his perception that the supposedly civilized Anglo-American colonizers of the West and not Indians were in fact savages. We'll be back with more from Carrie Driscoll in a minute. I'm Walt Woodward. I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happened in this state on this date. After moving to the East in 1867, Clemens wrote a memoir of his years on the Western frontier called Roughing It. In this work, he invents a fictitious tribe of Indians whom he calls Goshutes, an ethnocentric pun, go shoot, implying that Indians should be hunted for sport, and characterizes them as follows. It was in this wild country that we came across the wretchedest type of mankind I have ever seen, the Goshute Indians. Such of the Goshutes as we saw were small, lean, scrawny creatures, their faces and hands bearing dirt, which they had been hoarding and accumulating for months, years, and even generations, according to the age of the proprietor. A silent, sneaking, treacherous-looking race, taking note of everything covertly, like all of the other noble red men that we do not read about, and betraying no sign in their countenances, indolent, everlastingly patient and tireless, like all other Indians, prideless beggars, for if the beggar instinct were left out of an Indian, he would not go, any more than a clock without a pendulum. Hungry, always hungry, and yet never refusing anything that a hog would eat, though often eating what a hog would decline. Hunters, but having no higher ambition than to kill and eat jackass rabbits, crickets, and grasshoppers, and embezzle carrion from the buzzards and coyotes. Savages, who when asked if they have a common Indian belief in a great spirit, show us something which almost amounts to emotion, thinking whiskey is referred to. A thin, scattering race of almost naked black children, these go-shoots are, who produce nothing at all and have no villages and no gatherings together into strictly defined tribal communities. Twain concludes this description by universalizing his observations, declaring that whenever one finds an Indian tribe, he has only found Goshutes, more or less modified by circumstances and surroundings, but Goshutes after all. This sweeping generalization, that not only are all Indians alike, but also as equally repulsive and degraded as the Goshutes, reflects the depth of his animosity. Throughout his career, Mark Twain lectured widely, both at home and abroad, in 1874, he gave a talk in Liverpool, England, entitled Roughing It on the Silver Frontier. 
He never scripted his remarks in advance or read from a text, but instead talked. The performance was not completely extemporaneous, however. He would bring to the podium a sheet of visual cues called prompt notes. The prompt notes for the Liverpool lecture were given to a member of the audience and thus preserved. What you see here are a series of graphic, almost cartoon-like icons and shorthand notations intended to jog the writer's memory of particular incidents he wished to share. Lake, for example, refers to a disastrous visit to Lake Tahoe on the Nevada-California border where he accidentally started a huge brush fire. And to the right, a series of animals, like the pet tarantula that once escaped from a glass jar and terrorized a room full of sleeping miners, a coyote, a sage hen, that was supposedly Nevada's greatest delicacy. But the boldest graphic on the page, set apart in a square, is the silhouette of a menacing, if rather stereotypical, hawk-nosed warrior across whose face is scrawled 6,000 engines. This image intrigues me both for its flagrant literal falsehood and larger metaphorical truth. Twain never encountered 6,000 engines in any context in Nevada territory and certainly never engaged in combat with them. The strangely arbitrary figure 6,000 underscores his perception of Native Americans as formidable foes and registers an acute fear of savagery. Twain's negative representations of Native peoples as vermin and reptiles, even desirable subjects for extermination, as he calls them in an 1870 essay called The Noble Red Man, is counterpointed and complicated by a series of statements made over several different decades in which he identifies himself as an Indian. Any psychologists in the room? In an 1881 speech called Plymouth Rock and the Pilgrims, he states, my first ancestor gentleman was an Indian, an early Indian. Your ancestors skinned him alive, and I am an orphan. Similarly, in an unpublished piece from the late 1890s called Conversations with Satan, he claims that, quote, by rights, I was an Indian, though changed in the cradle through no fault of my own, unquote. In 1907, Clemens, whose formal education ended in fifth grade due to the untimely death of his father, was awarded an honorary doctorate from Oxford University, one of the world's oldest, most prestigious institutions of higher education. In his autobiography, he reminisces about the thrill of receiving the degree in revealing terms. A university degree is a prize that I would go far to get at any time. I take the same childlike delight in a new degree that an Indian takes in a fresh scalp, and I take no more pains to conceal my joy than an Indian does, thereby conflating two very different types of skin, the parchment of the Oxford diploma with the most iconic trophy of savage warfare. Moreover, the resplendent silver and crimson regalia Twain received at Oxford delighted him to the extent that he wore it in public whenever possible during the remaining three years of his life, even at the wedding of his middle daughter, Clara. (laughs) Poor Clara. At the end of a speech given in New York City in 1908, he donned the Oxford robe, gazed down admiringly at it, and said, I like that gown. I always did like red. The redder it is, the better I like it. I was born for a savage. Now, whoever saw any red like this, 
There is no red outside the arteries of an archangel that could compare with this. As this pattern of really weird ideation suggests, Twain was trapped in what historian Philip Deloria calls an unresolved dialectic of simultaneous desire and repulsion in his views of indigenous peoples. In his imagination, Indians are simultaneously a repugnant, savage other and an emblem of his truest natural self. In the last decade of his life, the writer moved toward a stance of cultural relativism in which all fixed categories, race, gender, class, and time itself, were called into question. This concept is illustrated in a 1903 essay called Instructions in Art, published in the New Metropolitan Magazine. Posing as an exalted portraitist, whose subjects are impossible to identify, Twain uses a series of original sketches to dispense inane advice, such as, do not paint in installments, putting the head on one canvas and the bust on another. He also parodies the pretentious jargon of art critics, describing one of his portraits, as it happens in nude, as a still life and an impressionist picture done in distemper with a chiaroscuro motif modified by monochromatic technique. (laughs) To demonstrate his versatility, the author incorporates illustrations of a wide variety of subjects, from the mythical figure of Persephone to an obscure, empty-handed fisherman named Joseph Jefferson. But, he says, the best, most winning and eloquent portrait my brush has ever produced is a lady in the style of Raphael. Originally, I started it out for Queen Elizabeth, but was not able to do the lace hopper her head projects out of. Therefore, I tried to turn it into Pocahontas, but was again baffled and was compelled to make further modifications, this time achieving success. By spiritualizing it and turning it into the noble mother of our race and throwing into the countenance the sacred joy which her first tailor-made outfit infuses into her spirit, I was able to add to my gallery. The notations Twain inscribed on this illustration reveal that the figure's metamorphosis was more complex than he acknowledges. As the image evolves due to the limitations of his draftsmanship, it transcends not only time and space, but also the boundaries of race, ethnicity, and gender. Twain's joke, of course, is that the finished portrait is not Eve or even female, but rather, as the words in the upper left-hand corner indicate, a likeness of Sitting Bull, the famed Lakota veteran of the Battle of the Little Bighorn, whose assassination on December 15, 1890, was a precipitating factor in the Wounded Knee Massacre two weeks later. The portrait's shifting identity reflects the relativistic quality of Twain's late thinking about race. His changes, moving progressively backward through time, from Sitting Bull and Pocahontas to the mother of us all, trace a symbolic genealogy of the human family. Like the speaker in Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, Twain's composite image is maternal as well as paternal, representing every hue, every caste, and religion, not merely of the New World, but of Africa, Europe, or Asia, a wandering savage. In dissolving the binaries that have traditionally separated groups and cultures, the portrait underscores the commonality of all peoples. Although the image of Indian Eve implies a liberalization in Twain's views about Indians, he never formally retracted 
or modified the harsh statements he made about them earlier in his career. Yet among the papers left unpublished at his death is a short dialogue called The Dervish and the Offensive Stranger, in which the writer explicitly acknowledges the destructive impact colonization had on indigenous tribes. Columbus discovered a new world and gave to the plodding poor and the landless of Europe farms and breathing space. They hunted and harried the original owners of the soil and robbed them, beggared them, and drove them from their homes and exterminated them, root and branch. Why Twain chose not to publish this piece remains a tantalizing mystery, suggesting that Indians remain an enigma for him until the very end. Thanks. In the Q&A, Carrie circled back to how Twain's childhood in Missouri might have influenced his later attitudes. Missouri becomes a state in 1821, and then there's an immediate attempt to relocate all the natives. Uh, One of the most celebrated Missouri senators, Thomas Hart Benton, says in his autobiography, to remove Indians made way for slaves. So uh, there is a kind of what I'm going to call a vestigial presence of natives sort of shadowy on the margins of Hannibal in the early years when when he is growing up there. Um, So he's getting both the romantic view of Indians from the work of, say, James Fenimore Cooper, popular music, etc., and then it's counterpointed by these really scary stories Um, of massacres of innocent settlers, Um, one in particular of which was told apparently on a pretty regular basis by his mother (laughs) to her children. That's a bedtime story. So, 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 you know, he, in his autobiography, Dictated Late in Life, there are these really tantalizing traces of, he talks about, say, an Indian doctor, who lived in the woods, and all of the mothers would consult all right, this, this you know, doctor, this medicine man, shaman, uh, for cures. But you can't find anything to kind of corroborate that, right? Um, but yeah, I do talk, there's, I spend an entire chapter talking about just that. In, tr- in terms of trying to figure out um, what the basis all right, of, of these antagonistic attitudes is. And I, I won't keep you any longer because you've been so kind and patient, but a really interesting figure in, in my study is Clemens's older brother, Orion, 10 years his senior. And you would think if Orion and Sam grew up hearing that same gruesome story that Jane would spin out at great length about what she called the Montgomery Massacre in, in Kentucky, that Orion would have shared some of those same bad feelings. Orion is so much more progressive than Sam in his political views, and when he goes out to Nevada Territory, he's the secretary to the territorial governor, and he's doing everything. I, I found wonderful letters that uh, Orion is writing, you know, back to people in Washington about, you know, what do I do? You know, the Paiutes—they're—they're they're so hardworking. They just need a little bit of support, and you know, so it, he didn't—he wasn't getting. Sam wasn't getting these attitudes from the example of his older brother. Carrie was asked about Twain's wife Olivia Clemens's attitudes. 
The, the last two chapters of, of the book, there's a chapter on Australian Aboriginals and then a chapter on the Maori in, in New Zealand. And I found a wonderful letter. So, so the way it worked on, on the World Lecture Tour is that, you know, Twain was bankrupt and he was trying to make as much, and it was a twofer, right? He was trying to make as much money as he could, both from lecturing at this really grueling pace, right? You know, often night after consecutive night, uh, and then he was going to write a book about it so that he would get, you know, yet, yet more money from, from the experience. Because, you know, it's 1895-96, they're traveling like through the outback of, of Australia, and he often would send Livy and Clara on to the next big city, get them set up in a very comfortable hotel, and then he and his agent, Carlisle Smythe, would take these trains sort of out into the boonies, right, you know, so that he could get in a few more lectures, but they weren't constantly packing and unpacking in the heat and getting tired, etc. So on one of those junkets, they're in Whanganui, uh, New Zealand, which is on the North Island. And if, if you know anything about New Zealand, the greatest concentration of Maori is on the North Island. There are very few on, on the South Island. He's really interested in, in the Maori. He wants to see Maori. He wants to talk with Maori. And so he goes off on one of his lectures, but before he does, he does this kind of reconnaissance. He goes to a Maori village, to a council house by himself, and then there's this letter the next day from Livy to Susie, living at Quarry Farm in, in Elmira, and she tells her about this visit. And she says, you know, it was a dirty place. We got fleas. I mean, she's really, you know, she said, the end of the letter is, I was very interested in learning about the Maori when we came here, but now I've had enough. You know, so, so I think that in terms of the World Lecture Tour, he was m much more open-minded uh, and interested in, in learning about the native peoples of the Southern Hemisphere. Don't forget to enter our drawing to win a copy of Carrie's book, Mark Twain Among the Indians. Share Connecticut Explored's post about this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and tag us to be entered in the drawing. Offer expires July 15, 2018. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Carrie Driscoll and the Mark Twain House and Museum. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com, and now available on Spotify. And for more great Connecticut stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, at ctexplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at bowman.legal. And Connecticut Humanities. Visit cthumanities.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.